Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery with me, Jody Stevens. We are here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions. We dive into the physical, emotional, and spiritual aspects of addiction and recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. Welcome back to Live Your Best Life Sober Part 2 with me, Jody Stevens, my husband, Aaron. So glad that you're here. So glad that you're listening. By the way, if you didn't listen to Part 1, I would just encourage you to go back and listen to it because you told basically your story and it's pretty amazing. It's very powerful. Just basically where you were then, what happened and how you got sober. And then we fast forward to where you and I met. So I would just encourage you to listen to part one so that part two makes a little bit more sense. So, and by the way, honey, this show, Genuine Life Recovery, it has a new sponsor. It does. Jody Stevens Productions. That works. <laughs> My production company is sponsoring this show. So if you need audio book narration or commercial production, copywriting, uh, stuff like that, check out my website and you just click the... You mean um, like radio and digital commercials? Yeah, exactly. Oh, there you go. At uh, jodystevens.org. And then the other part of the business is just advocacy, what we're doing here, because we've both been sober. Again, if you didn't listen to part one, you've got almost 20 years. 19, uh, yeah, you've got almost 20 years, and I've got 16 coming up on 17 years. Praise the Lord that we are sober today and we have a great life. That doesn't mean it's perfect. There's ups and downs. The Bible says in this world you will have trouble, (laughs) but take heart, I have overcome the world. So life's not perfect, but life is good and life is fun. 19.43 years, according to my official app here. Wow. So there you go. So we are... Um, That's awesome. So yeah, so we left off with where we met. You had spilled beer on your fourth step, and you really came to this kind of realization of some of the things that were triggering you to drink, and that's a really important part of recovery. Yep. And then we met, and you had about a couple years of sobriety, two years, I think, and I was going on one. I was at three and a half, I think, because we met in 06. Well, I mean, we met probably in 04, but um, we, like, met for real, like, in in terms of, like, interest in 06. And uh, at that point, I was about three and a half years sober, and I remember— That's right. You have three years— more than I do in, in... Well, I'm November of 02, and you're June of 05, so it's like two and a half years. But at that point, you were past a year, and I was mm-hmm. at three and a half. In the first half of this thing, we were talking about, you know, me being 325 pounds and, and all the relational issues and mm-hmm. really just all the stuff I had to sort through, all the fears I had to conquer just to be able to get my four-step done. Yeah. So now I'm getting through my four-step, or I got through my four-step on the third try. And remind people again, what, what is a fourth step That's in recovery? That's fear, that searching and fearless, and keyword fearless, moral yes. inventory of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Took a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. So here I am, um, after not having dated for basically 10 years, mm-hmm. and um, not really having had dated that much, I mean... My idea of dating was going to a party and and meeting somebody and then it'd be done after a week. Um, You know, it was just one fling after another, that kind of thing. Right. Part of that work that I was doing on myself was realizing that I had relational problems all the way across the board. Yeah. You know, including with women, you know, women in terms of dating, 
there was like professional relationship problems. There was interpersonal relationship problems. There was, you know, all the the isolation and the low self-esteem and the feelings of inadequacy and stuff like that. So as my self-esteem started to heal, you know, I started to realize I'm able, I'm allowed to have good things. Like the first half I was talking about how I was driving a beat up old car and it took a long time into sobriety before I felt comfortable buying a new car, which I was finally able to do. I remember the first time I bought a new car, I like was really freaking nervous. Like I had done something wrong and I totally had buyer's remorse. I think too, what happens when you struggle with self-esteem issues, they, there's this term imposter syndrome sure. where you feel like I'm just a fake. I don't deserve deserve anything I have. My success right. is all a joke. And it's because you've been hiding so long, putting forth this false front and not really knowing who you are. And then once you get to that point, you're like, hey, I really do have talent. I really do have skills. I really do have all this stuff. It's coming out of that shame, you know? Well, one of the things that happened before we met, um, just to kind of set the table for what happened when we met, you know, just one morning, and I think this happens to a lot of people, whether you're in or out of sobriety, but for me, it was triggered by my by my journey through finally being able to, to do my steps was um, I just woke up one morning and said, wow, you're crazy. <laughs> and I just started laughing at myself in the mirror. And it was so freeing because after that point in my life, life became way easier to live because, you know, God knew I was going to lose 135 pounds. Mm -hmm. He knew I was going to become attractive and he knew that the female species was going to become interested in me again, <laughs> whether or not I was uh, ready for it or not. Right. Um, but he knew I was ready because I had been doing all this work on myself and my self-esteem and my relationships and all that stuff. We're in the singles group at Bayside, Big Bayside, we call it, the Bayside Granite Bay, for any of you that are familiar. Exactly. If you're in the California region, you've heard of it. Yeah. It's a, it's there's a like mega church. Yeah, there's like 13 franchises or what have you, but we went to the original. <laughs> it's kind of a franchise now, isn't we it? We went to the original Bayside, and, and I um, this is where we met in the singles group, like, Folks, it actually works. It does. You actually can meet somebody in church, and you actually can meet somebody in church in a singles group. And they say, like, if you're both, if you meet in AA, <laughs> it's usually a bad idea. But most people will tell you they have seen it work beautifully before. I would probably say we were the exception. I wouldn't say run into an AA meeting and, and try to get a date initially, but, no. you know. No, there's a lot of predators in AA meetings. There are. Was, you have to be careful. That was one thing I really, um, a lot of these men that I would interact with in AA meetings, I'd see their eyes wander and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And I would warn women to just do not, do not date out of this meeting. Well, here we're in a singles group, very healthy singles group with a very healthy pastor. So the environment was different. Yeah. If, if I recall right, um, you were having a birthday, and I was at that time working two jobs. I was delivering pizzas out of the round table in Lincoln and doing my insurance job at daytime. And I think the first two times we tried to connect, one was when you passed a year sober, and the prior, like in May, was your birthday, and then in June was passing one year sober. Well, finally, I had a weekend off from the blasted pizza place, so we go to this Fourth of July party. Now, I got to just to set the table for everybody listening. I had gone from 325 pounds down to 195 pounds, and I did it the old-fashioned way. So not only did I lose all the weight, but I was working out, so I was pretty good and toned. 
I was, I was already pretty strong for my playing days as it was, but just I'm giving you the idea of like, I went from at age 33 being 325 pounds, you know, wearing a triple X shirt to now I'm 35 and I'm wearing a men's large and I'm about 200 pounds. And I'm also, you know, bench pressing 275 pounds, squatting 405 pounds. That gives you an idea of of, of where my fitness level was, I was clueless when it came to women. I mean, part of my alcoholic story is just with the relational issues and being isolated and feeling like I could sit in a room full of people and be all alone. I mean, that was just one of the weirdest things. And I dealt with that my entire life up until probably about two or three years sober. And that finally started lifting and having the committee, the committee in my head, people talk about, it's not like voices in your head, like you're a psychopath. It's just always living in a state of confusion where you have just multiple thoughts going on at the same time in a blender. So I'm coming Mm -hmm. out of all of that, the physical issues, the mental issues, the emotional issues, and then also reconnecting with my faith in Christ, which I had had 20 plus years prior when I was a little kid, and being able to disassociate that from my family issues and understand that my relationship with God was between me and God. And just because my family represented it to me for a lot of my life didn't mean that that was God, if if that makes sense to people listening. Well, and that's so important. I mean, I had a similar thing. I think, I, you know, you know the story with a, after going through like a major depressive episode during sobriety, having a therapist literally say to me, why would you let anyone steal your relationship with God. And it was just a simple right. thing. But it was very life-changing because so many people can say, well, I don't believe in God because those Christian people did this. And it's like, well, they're people. But don't don't base your relationship on God. Let it be based on what people do. But it's hard That's when right. you have wounds that other people caused. But God loves knuckleheads. He created so many of them. <laughs> so here we are. Jeez. So the table is now set, folks. It's July 4th. Here I am at this event with all these people from the singles group. And mind you, I'm still in that emotional and spiritual fog because, you know, this is coming in phases for me as I'm coming out of my childhood, getting sober. And out of the corner of my eye, I look over. Here's this hot chick from the local radio station who's the morning drive DJ. And she's looking at me and she's drooling. You did look really hot that night. I'm just saying. And I'm like, hmm, I think she likes me. For that, like for the first time in years, literally years, it's like, I don't know what it was and I don't know why it was that time, that evening, what have you. I looked over and said, holy crap, there's a chick who's interested in me that I'm actually interested in. And I'm like, well, okay. You know, me being the salesman that I am, I recognize the buy signs, right? Okay. Okay. Work with me, people. Because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I didn't have the first clue on how to relate to people, let alone the opposite sex, let alone trying to find a wife or any of that neat stuff. I'm 35 years old. Literally, the last time I went on a date was some chick I got stoned and drunk with and can't remember the rest of the evening. So typically, I would keep women or people at arm's length because, you know, I had just come to believe that women were demons from hell that were designed to suck the life out of you. (laughs) Well, and as you know, me, I had a lot of boyfriends, but they were all, as I said before, looked like their head belonged in a carburetor. And so, you know, they were basically not 
emotionally intuitive. They were very distant and they were, you know, you were like this kind of emotional guy. You were in touch with your feelings to, to some degree. I mean, you know, and you Well, were, I'd been through a ringer by that point. Yeah, you when you, and you were touch. highly intelligent. Most of the guys that I dated didn't really have much of an IQ. And so it was just really, it was very different. It was, it was yeah. God brought me someone that and would I had normally to get in touch. be... With my emotions. Yeah. I would have never been able to finish my four-step. I would have never been able to advance through the program. You could and, complete a sentence. And by the way, yeah, well, that, that <laughs> bonus <laughs> bonus time, <laughs> knuckles come off the ground, <laughs> sentence gets completed. But yeah, yeah. The point of it is, by that point, folks, the deal is this, is like I had to get in touch with my emotions because that was what was going to prevent me from relapsing. Mm -hmm. Because part of the deal with being an alcoholic or being a drug addict or being a whatever is you stuff your emotions so you don't have to feel them because you're afraid of them. And now all of a sudden this whole blender, this whole vortex of emotions is coming out and what have you. And so here we go. Being the salesman that I am, again, not having any clue how to deal with the opposite sex, I said, well, I might as well just ask for a follow-up appointment. <laughs> <laughs> and that was literally the thought that went through my head. Of course, I got a follow-up appointment. And I really don't remember what the second and third date was. I think one of them, we were at this Chinese place, that this uh, franchise called Pickup Sticks that's only in Southern California oh, now. It's the best, but they closed in Sacramento. Yeah, and they. Uh, but we're there. And I think that was the third date, to be honest with you, because that's when, like, I was walking and I, like, almost tripped on the, the planner or something like that because I couldn't believe I'd just been two weeks ago. I was like, you know, I'm at peace with being 35 and single. If I never get married, that's fine. You know, I'm just going to concentrate on me and doing the work I need to do to holy crap, I'm in love <laughs> after three dates. <laughs> And it was something I'd never had it, for me because I had little or no dating experience at that point. It was unmistakable. I knew exactly what it was. Yeah, people always tell you, you know, when you're in love with somebody, you'll know that sort of thing. Like for me, it was even more impactful because I didn't have any other, you know, puppy love or pseudo love experiences or anybody mm -hmm. else ever. It was like it was clear. It's different when it's real. It's different when it's real because yep. it makes you change. The people that I had went out with, a lot of times I would pick these kind of guys because my self-esteem was crappy and because my self-esteem was so low, I could get. I would go out with guys that, I mean, I don't want to say that I was better than them. You know what I mean? But it's just they were kind of you losers. Were you were comfortable because you could keep them at length. It, so I could keep them at length. And then when, once we fell in love, it was like, oh, my gosh, I can't keep them at length. I can't pull my normal crap. I can't, you know, start a fight. I can't do the push-pull routine. I can't, you know, because well, I respected of, you. So it was you, very scary. You I mean, tried some of that stuff. And then, but because you're at a point in your program, you started to realize that it was immature and stupid and yeah. it wouldn't. And it was just one of those things where it was just like, you just realize like, you can't do this crap because it's going to wreck the relationship. Exactly. I really don't want to be single anymore. I'd really like to be in love with somebody and spend my life with somebody and what have you. So literally... This blender starts again for both of us now because now we're put in a circumstance where we're both getting healthy, somewhat healthy people, and we're dealing with a relationship that's healthy, that's bounded, that's founded on health, that's yeah. somebody we met in church, somebody we met in sobriety and stuff like that. And this is why we're kind of the exception of the rule about two people in sobriety. I mean, we were actually working an active program. We're actually seeking the Lord yeah. and things of that nature in our life at the time. Which is why 
we were able to survive because I think we both made a choice that we were going to do what it took to have a good marriage and to have a good relationship. And you had taken a couple years and really worked through that. I want to point that out because they do say there's certain things like not jumping into a relationship super fast. I mean, I did and it worked out. Like, And I mentioned this with my brother. He sadly passed away, as you probably know if you've listened to this show before. But he would roll into these relationships very quickly or he would roll into coming in, into sobriety, getting a really good job. And now I'm going to build a house and do all this stuff, but didn't really have the emotional skills because he hadn't worked through the stuff. And it takes a few years. And so then these little things like a date or a, a good job would trigger him and he would relapse and that would be all she wrote. And so that's why it's really important to take some time, work right. on yourself. That's why they say easy does it, slow down, don't jump into these relationships because then once you do, something bad could happen. Now you're going to be triggered. You could you could relapse and so you just you need to develop at least that support and start working a program before you jump into relationships and things like that and understand the areas that might trigger you to drink or use drugs. Rome wasn't built in a day. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, you just have to be easy on yourself. You know, you don't, like in my case, you don't spend 17 years drinking yourself into oblivion mm-hmm. and then just expect to freaking come right out of it in 17 days. That's stupid. It's, it's, it's absurd if you think about it. If you take a step back. So what if it takes you three years to get through your steps? As long as you're pulling your head out and you're trying to break the chains of your behavior. Right, so, because you're spending all those years from the time you were 14 self-medicating. Well, and so you and get I'm sober. sure I was doing it even all the way to back to when I was a little kid, too. Exactly. I mean, it, just, it was the, the, the patterns were there. So you're not really you don't really know what you're feeling and you need to right. get rid of the booze and figure out and learn how to, as they say, deal with life on life's terms. So we've ended up with a successful marriage because, like, early on, I think we knew that our families, even though they didn't try to, were going to be the biggest obstacle. They were going to do the stuff that they do. They don't know any better, and they were going to do it. And, um, like, for us personally, like, you made a conscious decision that you weren't going to play the relationship games with me that you did with all these other boyfriends you had. For me, it was, uh, there's this other person in my life now. She's more than just somebody to sleep with. She's actually like a, a, a best friend, a life partner, you know, a wife in every stretch of the imagination. This isn't just some chick I meet at a party. Like, this is a real deal. I'm 35. She's 34. We have jobs. We have careers. She has stuff. I have stuff. And we felt head over heels in love. Like, literally... I pro- we went out on our first date on July 4th. I had proposed to her before Labor Day. <laughs> and then we were legally married on October the 20th. So if you're if you're good at math, you'll realize that's 14 weeks. Yep. And uh, here it is. We've been married past 15 years now. The secrets were this. Because we had both been through our steps and we had both been uh, taking ourselves apart, putting ourselves back together again, we recognized where our, where our frailties were, in particular where we were selfish. In particular areas where we're uh, emotionally unavailable and defense mechanisms and triggers and all that stuff. I recall many times early in our marriage where we would have circumstances and like one or the other of us would stop ourselves mid-circumstance and go, holy crap, look what I'm doing to you. I can't do that to you. You're my husband. I can't do that to you. You're my wife. 
you know, and, and so like some couples fight over the stupidest crap, like open cabinet doors or, you know, toilet seat up, toilet seat down. It just stupid stuff like that. We never did. We never did that because I think our program put our head in the place where like we needed to do what we could do to make sure our relationship thrived and succeeded. Back to my particular part of the story, the biggest challenge that I've dealt with as a married man and in sobriety, you know, has been my family because, you know, I can truthfully tell you that my family has not accepted my sobriety. They may talk about it. They may acknowledge it, but they haven't accepted it because none of them have had a, a, you know, counseling or a recovery program or anything like that or have really gone through to look at any of their own stuff. That's fine. That's their deal. They can do whatever they want. That refusal to accept and what have you has had long-term and pretty devastating relational um, impacts. Like I'm pretty much estranged from my family at this point, not because of anything I did, but simply because I was trying to put up healthy boundaries and trying to do things like that. And it just didn't work. Well, and when there's dysfunction in a family dynamic and a person gets sober, they're the ones that break the culture. And so they're the ones that are seen as the problem. There's a thing in recovery when they talk about family culture and recovery is homeostasis. And homeostasis is that things try to go back to the way that they were. Are you getting all therapeutic? I am. And so, so like, let's say, let's say dad is an alcoholic and everybody tiptoes around dad and they develop this identity based on tiptoeing around dad or whatever is that's dysfunctional, stuffing their emotions, but it's never based on who you are as an authentic human being. It's based on trying to fit into this family dynamic. And when you get sober, you start to see all that stuff. And then you inevitably start calling people on it like, hey, you're going, you know, and then nobody likes that and nobody wants to change the the system. And so you're effectively out of the system. And that's why with addiction recovery, they really push for family therapy but it's not always possible right because you, you it's it's a it's a family disease i mean everybody that that comes out of addiction will tell you that they had so many people in their family that struggled with addiction both you and i do you know my my brother died of addiction my grandfather died of addiction my uncle died of complications the other uncle i mean you know you go on and on and on and so to think that you can just treat the one person and not the family is kind of stupid. Yeah, it's 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 absurd, that's for sure, but, but you know But sometimes what? that's how it has to be. Yeah, it is what it is. I mean, I could still be living in the family system. Actually, I wouldn't be living in the family system. I'd probably be dead like your brother. Mhm. And be. you know, had I not done it. And so, you know, when faced with a choice, right? About a year and a half ago, I was faced with a choice of, you know, choosing the healthy lifestyle I was plotting out for myself and choosing to return and be part of the tribe. And when backed into the wall and forced to make that decision, of course, I chose my sobriety and my and my healthy life and what have you. And the consequences are what they are. Maybe someday there'll be reconciliation with, with, with them. I don't I don't know. Don't know if it's possible given where I'm at and they're at. But you know the fact of the matter is this is it says in the big book at the very beginning of, 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 of every meeting, when we read that how it works section, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any, any lengths, lengths to, to get, get it, it, okay? What does that mean? You're willing to walk away from your family if that's what it requires to stay sober. And I was willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And I did it. I actually put that into practice. 
And I don't have any illusions about whether or not I will have a relationship with my family again. It's not possible. The boundaries prevent it. It's not possible to have a healthy relationship with them unless there's a miracle from the Lord. But I was put in a situation where I was backed into a corner and forced to choose at 18 plus years of sobriety um, to, to do that. And it's okay. I mean, I'm at peace with that. I can't make them accept me for who I am. And that that's just it. But I know what God thinks, and I know where I'm at, and I know where my life is. And, you know, I wouldn't trade it in. Uh, I wouldn't trade you in for another model. I wouldn't trade my life in for anything else. Um, because, you know, when you go back and you start taking, you know, the old four-step 19 and a half years into this journey, <laughs> yeah, you still four-step because that's what the 10th step is, ladies and gentlemen. Continue to take personal inventory when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Sometimes it could just be the taking personal inventory, look at where you're at and say, wow, look at where I'm at. Well, and I think, too, everything that you just said is the gift of sobriety, because there is a lot of things that normal people struggle with that are luxuries. They're not luxuries that I would want, but they're luxuries that they have, and those luxuries are having resentments every day. Those luxuries are being addicted to anger. Those luxuries are being a rageaholic. Like, these are things that if you're an addict, they're triggering points that will cause you to relapse and drink. So there's something in AA about, you know, these types of things are luxuries. Resentment is something that the common right. man gets to afford, but right. but to us, it is death. And so not only do we do this daily inventory, I mean, we don't always do it daily, but it's a situation where when something bad happens, it, it becomes natural in sobriety if if you know um, this self-reflection, basically. All these steps are really about self-reflection. And so a lot of people don't do that. They just no. don't. And so no. you look and you're, and you're, you're self-reflecting and you're saying, this is where I messed up and I was wrong. I better go apologize. So we learn to see our own gobbledygook. But with that comes being able to see other people's. And there is a beauty to that as long as you're not totally judgmental. But you can look at it and you can go, wow. I am so thankful today that I'm able to see that and self-correct. And that's one of the huge gifts of sobriety is discernment and self-reflection that a lot of people, I always say a lot of people in life never get that far. Do you hear the, this this woman I'm married to? Do you hear that maturity and stuff like that? Speaking of gifts of sobriety, I'm like, I'm married to her. I get to, I get to live with her. I sleep in the same bed as her. We get to have conversations about stuff like this. This is the kind of relationship that we have. Mm -hmm. This, you know, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I would not be sober. And if I was not sober, I wouldn't have Jody. And I wouldn't have all of these other things. I wouldn't have nice things today. I wouldn't have a nice house and a couple of new cars and, and the other things that we've got, this stuff in life. Because in order to, to have that life, it's a life sentence being an AA, Okay. That, this is what they say in, in meetings. It is a life sentence being an AA. But I want you to understand that it is a life sentence where we are forced to live to a different standard. We don't have the luxury of being able to get away with being a jerk, a loser, dishonest, all the mm -hmm. other crap that it seems like the rest of the world gets away with. Because if we do stuff like that, we're going to relapse, we're going to drink, we're going to use, we're going to die. But God has allowed these circumstances to occur in our life to bring us to our knees to the place where we're actually willing to, to look at and go, man, I need to become a better person. I need to get over this crap. 
And so in mine and Jody's life, it took our addiction to bring us to our knees to where we could get to that place in our life to do that kind of work. So think it through here. You know, if you're early in sobriety and you really just kind of understand that on the back end of this, like this lifelong program, the benefit is, is that you get to live your life on a different plane. At the beginning, it's because you're forced to, because you don't want to die, you don't want to end up in jail again, but it becomes something that you want to do because this kind of a life has so many benefits personally, professionally, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, that you never want to go back to that place where you're at when you started this journey. The way I would want to conclude my story was God allowed me to be a 325-pound loser, 31 (laughs) years old, living at home, and allowed me to go through where I couldn't eat a cheeseburger without throwing up, where, where I was sweating out alcohol for like four or five months, you know, living through the fears and, and spilling beer on my four-step two or three times before I was finally, you know, broken enough to do this because those, you know, those emotional and mental scars are in my head to remind me of what waits for me if I forget who I am, who I've become, what I've done, where I've gone through. That is the other gift, is that God, if we're truly working our program, where we came from will always be there to remind us of what's waiting for us if we stop. But also, it is a comparison to who I am today and who I was then to remind me of what the benefits are of continuing on this path. It works both ways simultaneously. As I'm sitting here in the studio with my incredible, talented, beautiful wife that I met as a gift of sobriety. And that's my story, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sticking to it. (laughs) And it's an amazing story. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing. I love all the pieces of it, and I just love how God orchestrated it all and brought us together. You know, the Bible says he works all things out for the good, and it's absolutely true. And it started out really just coming to that place of acceptance, which is such a beautiful thing, acceptance. And then one of the things they talk about, I think it's just the blessings of God, but there's the promises they talk about in recovery and AA and NA and all that. And um, I don't know how many promises there are, but it's basically saying if you remain sober, if you do this work, good things will happen. That doesn't mean that bad things won't, but good things will happen. And I see that over and over and over again as as God brings blessings when you continue every day to do the right thing. You are one of those big parts of that story. Mm -hmm. And I believe, and I will say this, and I will say this until the day I meet my natural death, and that is that God brought us together on purpose. Mm -hmm. Because our sober stories have been enhanced by our relationship, number one. And number two, the more obvious one of the fact that there is no alcohol in our household because we're both, you know, equally yoked like that. And I think for both of us, we needed to have a partner that was sober as well. Mm -hmm. I'm actually 100% convinced of that as I look back on things in my life. And if you're struggling today, you have a family member that is, you know, I just encourage you again to share these these two episodes with them. But for you, it's coming to that initial place of acceptance because you have to start out where you are. You can't start out anywhere else. And so it's, you know, admitted that I was powerless over this addiction. My life is unmanageable. And just getting help one day at a time from there, because if you start to obsess over it, 
you know, beat yourself up, all those sorts of things, that's just going to trigger you even more and more and more. And this is that thing that we keep talking about. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it's because I find some person, person place, place, thing, or situation, something. some face of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity, aka no peace, no peace. until I accept that person, place, thing, thing or situation, situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, my addiction, my frailty, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and my attitudes. That's so beautiful. One of my very favorite pieces of recovery, and it applies to every area of life. I mean, every area of life, you can take that and go, I have to accept this because I could sit and obsess about it all day and be triggered and then get drunk or use over it, or I can accept it, pray about it, and then move forward from there, right? Because there's so many things you can't change. That's why acceptance is so key. And the obvious one for us as a couple is if we can't accept each other as being how we are, Yeah. guess what would happen in our relationship? Exactly. And we also talked about the addiction as part of a disease, the way that our brain works and stuff like that. So if you are struggling with addiction, it probably, it's A, it's not your fault. B, it could be born out of trauma and a lot of different things that happen. So I just encourage you to look at that, you know, just understand that piece of it and know that help is available and you don't need to fix everything today, right? It's just admitting that, hey, I've got a problem, reaching out for help, because again, it's it's a we program. Any type of recovery is a we program. And there's plenty, plenty of people who want to help you. It, it You know, not everyone likes AA and NA. That's okay. You can go to those meetings. I would always, I always encourage people to go to incorporate meetings with other stuff, whether it's a celebrate recovery group at your church, whether it's an inpatient or an outpatient treatment program, whether it's getting a addiction counselor. There's so many options for addiction and recovery today. So friends, just reach out for help and remember that you can't do it alone. And don't forget to, to leave a review on iTunes or whatever app you're listening through. We are on most apps. Uh, let's see, iTunes and Spotify and TuneIn and Amazon, Alexa, Audible. And you can also listen by clicking podcasts on my website at jodystevens.org. And please share this show with anybody you know struggling with addiction. So thanks, friends, and we will talk to you next time.